phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello, and welcome back to Federation Radio. It's me, your host, Floyd. So we're back with Tomorrow is Yesterday, which is a really, actually, good episode of time travel in Star Trek. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, of all the time travel episodes, this is probably one of the better ones. Now, the way that they time travel probably makes the least sense out of all of them, but since we can't time travel in real life right now, eh, I'm not going to criticize that too harshly. Now, the episode starts... I think the start is probably the least believable part, because it starts off with them saying that a black star apparently sucked them in a bit, the ship, almost got them in, and then when they tried to reverse and get out, it threw them from that star into a direction, and apparently threw them towards Earth, and they've ended in Earth's atmosphere a little above the clouds. So, like, they're they're not in orbit, they're actually in the atmosphere. Now, I don't know where this black star was, because we didn't get to see that, but the idea that it threw you to Earth without you hitting the moon or any other planet... You know, you got thrown around our sun and didn't get sucked into the sun, but somehow got sucked into the gravity well of Earth. Like, I don't know. That's probably the least believable part, especially them not crashing into Earth, if that is the case. But whatever. Like I said, Star Trek is sci-fi at the end of the day. You do have to forgive. It is fiction in space. They try and base it on science, but most of the time it is more fiction than actual science. So that's fine. They obviously just wanted to tell a story on Earth. And I appreciate that, because Earth, like I've mentioned before, is a place in Star Trek we don't get to go very often. Now, this one is interesting because the Black Star didn't just throw them. Like, they're not just being thrown across the galaxy and then having to travel back to where they were. They're also being thrown through time. Which, I don't actually know the science behind this, but I know in the old Superman movies they did something like this, where Lois Lane dies... She asphyxiates, not asphyxiates, I think that is the word actually, because she ends up underneath all this soil in her car, and Superman flies around and around and around the world, like, really fast, and goes back in time. So I don't know if this is just, like, a trope of writing, like, back in the day to time travel, or whether there was a theory that used to be pretty mainstream, that traveling fast enough in a certain direction would cause you to go back in time. I'm not actually sure, potentially, but in any case... They're back in time, and they're back on Earth. Sorry. So, they're on Earth, and they realize pretty quickly that they can't get in contact with anyone. They don't recognize anything that they're seeing. They're like, this isn't the Earth we recognize. And then they pick up some signals from a local radio station and realize something's weird. And then they just, on the sensors, pick up that a interceptor is on its way. And not, not a shuttle... Not a modern spacecraft, but an actual 1960s U.S. aircraft interceptor. Although, it is apparently armed with nukes. Which, I do have to say, I don't know if that was common U.S. doctrine back in the 60s to investigate, you know, possible UFOs with a nuclear-armed jet. That's, um, it seems pretty extreme to me, if you're not actually sure something's there, and just having nukes ready to go and maintain strapped to a jet ready to take off that quickly... I mean, it's not impossible, but did seem a little far-fetched. That seemed like a pretty extreme response. But whatever, it is the US. They are probably the most violent nation that's 
ever been on the earth <laughs> for all of their goods and all, they do have some faults and one of their faults is that they are an extreme military power especially back in the 60s when they were much more trigger happy you know height of the cold war era but um they determine that the moon landing is going to be happening in a few weeks they don't actually give the year but they say late 1960s which is kind of funny, because I feel like when this was on the air, it was the late 60s. The moon landing was probably a really big deal. From what I understand, the moon landing was one of the biggest events to happen across the Western world, particularly in America. Like Everyone was watching. I think it was one of the highest watched things on television that had ever been put on. Everybody that was alive at the time and had access to a television tuned in to watch the moon landing. Because why wouldn't you? It's cool. And also back then there was a lot less channels and a lot less other choices and things to watch, so the moon landing was particularly exciting. It's not like these days where you can just tune into NASA's live stream from the International Space Station pretty much whenever you want. Back then it was an eventus occasion. Mocasion, I was going to say. Occasion. But, um, so yeah, they've traveled back, this interceptor comes in, and Spock makes a point of Mr. Scott giving him updates and then... Sorry, Mr. Scott, the engineer, gives Spock updates about the ship and the fact that it's been sort of damaged during this whole Black Star incident. It was thrown across space. The engines are damaged. The ship's damaged. It currently doesn't have shields. There's a lot of problems. And Spock points out to Kirk, that interceptor might be old and uh, primitive compared to our technology, but in the state we're in right now, if it fires those nuclear missiles, it could do very severe damage to us that we may not be able to fix. So, you know... If, it's kind of fun because it's like, okay, we're in the 1960s. Ordinarily, if the ship was here, it would just be able to blow all of the Air Force out of the air without a problem. But in their current condition, this one interceptor is actually a threat. Now, what's interesting is that at this point, the whole taboo around time travel and the whole being careful, we don't want to change events, wasn't as at the front of everyone's minds as it seems to be in later time travel episodes. They were a lot more open to just talking to people, which uh, kind of made me laugh because there's a comment that's made, I think it's in Voyager, there's a group, we don't meet them yet, I don't know if they're in original Trek, but we'll meet them eventually, and they are basically time travel police, and they're a pretty big deal for a lot of the future time travel episodes. They show up and they try and clean up the mess that Starfleet makes sometimes when it time travels, usually by accident. But they cause events to change and mess with the timeline, and these people from the far future come back and they help us clean this up. And they hate some of the captains. They particularly hate Captain Janeway, which we'll talk about later. I love her, but um, they particularly talk about her, but they do make an offhanded comment that always made me laugh during that episode where they say she has the longest record of time travel incidents out of any captain in the fleet except Kirk. <laughs> Which always made me laugh because I was like, oh, because I could never quite remember what Kirk did in time travel, but I forgot he actually does time travel a couple times because I forgot about this episode. This is not the time travel episode I always thought about with Kirk. There are spoilers. There's going to be more with Kirk later, at least one more off the top of my head, but possibly more. And well, actually, at least two more off the top of my head because I forgot one of the movies is to do with time travel. But um. Yeah, anyway, that popped into my head at the start of this episode and just made me laugh. They're like, oh, here we go. That time travel agency's just forehead slapping themselves right now. Like, Kirk, he's at it again. He's back in time. <laughs> All right, so the Interceptor was approaching. They decided they didn't want to shoot it. They didn't want to blow it up. They tried to track to beam it. 
And uh, because it's a primitive earthcraft, you know, it's not designed to be tracted. Most of our modern aircraft work on a whole very complex system of aerodynamics and gravity. They're not really designed to suddenly halt all propulsion mid-flight by a tractor beam, which I imagine would kind of feel like hitting a stone wall in mid-air and just stalls your engines. Like, that's not good for, well, I say a modern jet, but 1960s jets are kind of way, way behind the tech we have now in 2022. But, you know, even our jets today, I think, would have a very similar effect if you tried to tractor beam them. They would just fall apart. They're simply not built for it. And as that begins, well, begins to happen, you know, Kirk doesn't want to kill whoever this pilot is. He's just doing his job. So they beam him aboard. And then his jet falls apart after they beam him aboard. Now they bring him on board to the bridge and they determine his name is Captain John Christopher. Which, I don't know, another one of those weird American things where they seem to have a lot of people that just have two first names. I mean, he's not. Obviously, his first name is John, his last name is Christopher, but... Christopher is a first name. I don't feel like that's meant to be a last name. A lot of Americans seem to have this weird John Christopher sounds like you're telling me the name of two different men, not one man's full name. But whatever. He comes aboard, and here's where I notice the difference in the time trial. He comes to the bridge, and they just start showing him around. Kirk says his name openly. I'm James T. Kirk. This is the Starship Enterprise. And Uhura starts like showing him around all the different consoles and screens presumably telling him all about this stuff and like later on no that's not how we do things we do as much as we can to limit our impact on the past we don't interact with as many people as possible and when we do we try and limit it we don't just invite them up to the bridge and say hey i want to look at technology that's like 300 years ahead here's how we do scanners here's our tractor beam here's this here's all this tech that you don't even have any idea about like 1960s this stuff was only just beginning to be theorized even in 2022 a lot of this stuff is still theory we're a lot further into the theory we've done a lot of experimentation with some of this stuff and a lot of it's looking more and more realistic by the day and at this point it's a numbers game of when it will be real and when it will be available rather than if we can do it. But it's still not here. Like, it's being beamed aboard a bridge of a starship like that even today would still be a big, like, holy, is this what we're going to be like in the future? This is crazy. <laughs> you know? And that's pretty much this guy's reaction. At first, he's kind of happy. He's excited because he's like, oh, the UFO, he comes aboard. He makes a comment about, I was expecting little green men, but humans are here you know which i think would be kind of comforting if you met humans and they spoke english as he also points out like you're speaking english and you're human in a starship that as an english-speaking westerner would calm me a lot as well if i was abducted by aliens which you know it'd be a lot more scary if you couldn't communicate or they weren't human if they looked like you some of the fear factor would fade away you'd still be confused and a bit in shock but it's more tolerable yeah at first he loves it they're looking around, and and then Spock's the one that brings it up. Spock sort of says to the captain, he's like, you know, we have a slight problem with the fact that he's here. We can't send him back. He's already seen and heard too much about the future to be able to go back without changing events. He's like, he's seen technology. He could put stocks in certain companies. He could tell politicians things. He could work with militaries. He, he knows too much. Even just the theoretical knowledge of what he's seen could alter events to a level where we never meet and our future doesn't exist. 
But Head of Spock put it, he says he could alter events so that they don't happen in the way that they have to happen. Which, you know, is the eternal danger of time travel. You don't want that to happen. It's the last thing you want to do is alter the past because it alters the future. It's the old, would you kill Hitler as a baby if you could go back in the past? Like, no, you probably shouldn't. For one thing, morally, because a baby hasn't done anything wrong yet and killing a baby because he grows up to be a bad man seems a bit immoral. But also because without an important figure like that, World War II would be different and who knows what that might do to the outcome. For all we know, someone more competent might have taken over and we might not have won, which would change even my modern existence, let alone what it would do 300 years in the future, knock-on effects with the butterfly effect. Like, yeah, you don't want to mess with that stuff. That's scary. You could be messing with your own existence. And, you know, he's right. So they, he has a meeting with him, and they basically tell him this, and that's the point where he sort of goes from being friendly and excited, kind of like I'd be with, oh, look at all this stuff, to what do you mean I can't go back? Like, he points out, I have a wife, and I have kids. He's like, what about them? And Kirk just sort of apologizes. At first, Spock says, I've looked at the records. He doesn't do anything relevant to history. So if he stays with us, he'll just go missing and it shouldn't affect anything too much. However, not long after that, he tries to break out. Kirk sends him to his quarters, to quarters that they give him, guest quarters, and tells him to wait there for a little while while they work out what's going on and whether they can get back to their time and what they're going to do with him. Fair enough. So, he doesn't stay there, though. They make a discovery, well, at least Spock does. He comes to Kirk's office and says, I've made a discovery about John Christopher that I missed before. I need to see you. And it turns out that while John Christopher is not that important a man, you know, he's an Air Force pilot... Seems like a decent man, he's married, but he won't do anything that history books will record. Spock does point out, he will have a son, a Colonel something Christopher, who leads the program, the very first space program, to go to Saturn, I think it was. Hang on, let's see if I wrote it down. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, a son that is important, no, oh, I just wrote important to the future of the space program, but yeah, anyway. He has a son who is going to eventually become a colonel and lead a program that takes us to Saturn, which is, you know, pretty important step in the Enterprise and all the people we know in the show becoming a thing. And Chris, they go to tell Chris this, but he's not in his room. He's trying to make his way to the transporter room that brought him aboard initially. Kirk calls out security and... Captain Christopher manages to knock out a security guard, take his phaser, and then attempts to take control of the transporter room to escape, which, you know, he is a military man, he's trying to report to his government, he's trying to protect his family and his people, he's basically just being told that you've been kidnapped by future humans, he doesn't know if they're telling the truth, for all he knows, this is a Soviet-Russian plot and they've beaten the Americans in the space program and just kidnapped him, he doesn't know what's going on. He is, I feel, perfectly in the right to try to escape. He is wrong, ultimately, but from his point of view, I fully understand why he tries to escape. And honestly, I can't say I wouldn't try and do the same. But they catch him. Well, Kirk catches him. Before he can transport, he gets knocked out and then gets taken to the med bay. He eventually wakes up and they inform him about his son. And he sort of looks at him and goes, I don't have a son. What do you mean, my son? I don't have a son. And he says, ah... You don't have a son yet. 
hence the problem of taking you from your time. You need to go back so that you can have your son, but we need you to go back in a way where you don't change the future. You know, it's kind of funny because he has this, and I had the thought too when he was thinking about it, he's like, I'm going to have a son, and he's kind of happy about that. And it's like, oh, is it weird to be proud of a child that you're yet to even conceive? That's a really weird, like, imagine being someone, like, imagine if any of you listening are parents. Like, I'm sure most parents are pretty proud of their kids, but imagine knowing before you've even conceived your child what their future entails and feeling pride in a human who doesn't even exist yet. That's a really weird concept to wrap your brain around. And, like, I kind of liked it, though. It was an interesting take on it. But, um, so, yeah. He then, hearing about his son, he decides he's not going to try and escape. He does tell the captain that, like, he is obligated to tell his commander if he does go back what he saw, but maybe not everything. He says, maybe I can just say I saw a UFO and give a basic description of the ship. And Kirk and Spock kind of say, well, that's not so bad. You'll be one of the many who sees a UFO in this era. So long as you don't have any actual evidence, that shouldn't affect the timeline too much. And he kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, well, there might be a slight problem. Because it turns out on the wings of his interceptor, there are cameras. Now, this is actually something in real life I've quite often wondered when it comes to UFOs. Because there is. Very recently, we've actually had, in I think it was 2021, the US State Department actually released footage from a few years ago of a naval aviator, so a, a interceptor pilot, someone like John Christopher, in the Navy, who followed a, a UFO, a flying object that we didn't know the origin of, and it seemed to move in ways that didn't seem human and then disappeared. But he had that footage. In this episode and that footage made me wonder, do all military jets have that footage? Like, do we just have somewhere evidence lockers? Does the military just keep these big warehouses full of these old reels and camera footage? Because that's kind of morbid in some ways, but also makes sense in others, but I don't know. But anyway... He talks about the camera and he says, I know where they would take that camera footage because they work out where the jet would have crashed and they've worked out by this point that, like, yeah, the US, obviously, if a jet had intercepted what they believed was a UFO and then suddenly cut off radio contact with the base and then the jet had crashed to the world, crashed to the Earth, pretty sure they'd be picking up the pieces from that. In particular, they'd be going directly for that footage and trying to bring it back to a base to see what the hell happened because we can't find the corpse of the pilot. He reported seeing something weird and suddenly his plane crashed. Like, what's going on? Natural state of events, they're going to look at that footage. Now, one man saying, giving a basic description of a UFO he saw as one thing. Footage of a UFO going public, that's another thing. I mean, the design of the Enterprise is based on designs of an Enterprise before this one, and the whole design of the ships might change if we base our ships around a UFO that we have footage of in the 60s, which again could change the future in a way that we don't want. So they have to change that. Now, he shows them, you know, where the base is that they that he's based in and where they would get that footage and where it would be taken to. He even draws them up a schematic and says, for my son's sake, you know, I don't want the future to change. If my son's going to become a successful colonel in the future, I want that to happen. So he says, I'm willing to help. And he basically is given a little board and he says, I'm willing to sketch out the base and show you exactly where the footage would be kept, where the room is that they would develop that footage, you know, and all that stuff. Like, he's willing to help. 
So that's what they do. They try and Kirk and Sulu, for whatever reason. It's kind of... Sulu's a weird character where he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he gets more than most. It's not more than most. Like, the show is almost all about the trio so far of Spock, McCoy, and Kirk. And a little bit of Scotty and engineering here and there as a support character. And here and there we get a little Uhura. But I would say of all the secondary characters in the original series, so far Sulu probably gets the most screen time of anyone outside the main three, which is kind of cool. But he gets chosen. We don't get to see him get chosen or anything. We just see Captain Christopher says he'll sketch it out. And next scene we get is Kirk and Sulu beaming into a 1960s Air Force base. Which, again, when this show was on the air, was probably based on what the military bases really did look like. It was, they may have even actually used an old military base that was now closed just to film. I don't, I don't know where they did this, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is what they did. I know there's a lot of TV shows that will quite often contact the American military and be like, look, we need to film this military scene. Would you be willing? Like, I think they rent out. Like, sometimes they'll give them tanks. Obviously, no ammunition. But they'll loan them a tank driver. They'll loan them a couple uniforms and be like, yeah, sure, that's cool. As long as you're making the US military look good in your show, we're willing to do that because it's basically free propaganda for them. You know, you want to recruit soldiers, I mean... Make your soldiers look cool in every platform, including Star Trek, so why wouldn't you help? I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if this was filmed in a real Air Force base using real air, real uniforms. Now, you know, obviously they're not going to reveal any state secrets or anything. They'll probably empty out the rooms, but I wouldn't be surprised if that is the real layout and how it happened. Now, they infiltrate the base, and mind you, I know in 2020... Well, 2022, it can be a little bit weird to imagine because when you hear that it gets recorded, you're like, no, that's just data. What stops that going? But, you know, remember, it's the 60s. Internet didn't exist. Computers were old school. The footage is in a reel. It's an old school, like, it's probably quite a large camera on the wing. And it's in this giant, like, film reel thing. So they have to go into this room. They get the film reel, and it is exactly where he said it would be, and Sulu and Kirk get it. And that's where the problems begin. A sergeant sort of sees lights on, comes through the door, sees Kirk and Sulu, captures them. He pulls out his revolver and says, hold right there. And he sort of arrests them. And he takes off one of their communicators and opens it up. And when he opens it, it causes the emergency signal to spark. And Spock immediately does what must be their, be their procedure of beaming up anyone who puts on the emergency signal. <laughs> Which, of course, adds to all the problems they have because, <clears throat> sorry, not only do they have Captain Christopher on board now, now they have this random Air Force sergeant who I don't think we ever actually get a name for, but we have him now on board the Enterprise, knowing the Enterprise exists, knowing some kind of spaceman exists, knowing that he just got teleported, and he's just standing there, and I do love, they kind of do it comically, he teleports into the transporter room, looks at Spock, and he's like standing sideways, he's like half crouched down with his revolver out, aiming at Kirk the way it was before he transported, and he is just frozen. Like, not literally, but mentally, he is just stopped in his tracks. He's like side-looking, he sees Spock, he sees the ears, he looks around, he realizes he's not where he just was, he's still holding the communicator, and he doesn't know what to do with himself, he just kind of freezes in place. And you know what? Fair enough. <laughs> I, 
I'd like to think that I would do a lot of things if I was kidnapped in a position like that or I'd do this and that. But you know what? I think as a human that is thrown so far out of their known world into an alien world, he's literally... Like, the 1960s, sci-fi was barely a thing. Star Trek was one of the first major sci-fi things that had ever been done. The idea of going to space was most Americans were excited to do it to beat the Soviets, not necessarily because they wanted to explore space. Most people were not that way inclined back then. It just wasn't how the culture was. So someone from that era being beamed into space, like, yeah, the idea that they're just mentally so overwhelmed by everything happening to them that they basically just shut down is not that unbelievable and kind of comical to watch because, like, after he beams up, Kirk grabs, you know, Sulu's communicator because he's just got taken and is now aboard the Enterprise with the sergeant and communicates with Spock and tells him what happened and says, sorry about that. Keep him where he is. Try not to let him see too much. And Spock just sort of looks at him, who is still, by the way, frozen. McCoy has taken the communicator off him and has taken the revolver off him and he has not moved a muscle. He's still standing exactly where he was, like, sideways, moving his eyes to look at everyone, scared to move. And Spock just says, don't worry, Captain. I think he's quite content to stay exactly where he is. And then they go on. So they get the reels. Now they go into the dark room, which if you don't know much about more so old school photography, like I don't know the science behind it, but there was some kind of solution that the old film reels had to be dipped in and that would cause the photos to actually like be seen. Obviously back then they didn't have video cameras. They would do it through film reels, so like old school films were just a bunch of pictures that would be flipped, kind of like a flip book rather than an actual ongoing video. So, which, I mean, technically that's what a video is now. We say frames per second. Like most days, most modern video games run on 30 or 60 frames per second. What that actually means is the old film reels would have a film reel and it would sort of slowly push the film through. The light would then bounce it through, kind of like a reverse microscope, blowing it up on the wall so that you could see each picture and have them move at a speed where it looks like the pictures are moving. Modern video games and stuff, every second, 30 or 60 of those frames get shown to you each second, which, when you really stop and think about it, is pretty damn impressive. But back then, you know, they were using film reels. But to make those pictures be viewable... You would take the picture and then you had to dip it in a solution of some kind of chemical. I'm no expert. I've never actually done it. But from my cursory you know, research into it, it seems that that is not water. Because as a kid, I always just assumed it was water. Whatever you take pictures on has to be dipped in water. But I don't believe it is. I think it actually is like bottles of some kind of solution. And for it to work, you have to be in what's called a dark room. Because sunlight and other forms of light, when mixed with it and the solution, could damage it. And then you'd lose the image. So you had to dip it in, and then you would hang it. Usually there'd be like lines on the wall. You'd put almost like a um, clothesline, like little bits of string or whatever across. And then people would use like pegs or little things. They'd dip it in the solution, pick it up, put it on the wall, and use a peg. And usually the rooms had like a red light, a very dark red light, something about the light had to be red. I think the red light wasn't able to damage the film, but it was enough for a human to be able to walk into the dark room, as they were called, and, you know, get your film and make pictures. So they had to go into this room with the reels, and they had to be certain that these reels actually were the right reels, because, I mean, imagine Kirk and Sulu came down and grabbed the wrong reel, and then a week later they're like, why did someone steal footage of this guy? He was just doing a routine patrol, and oh my god, look at this reel, it's a starship. 
So stealing the reels was not enough. They had to steal the reels and then go to the dark room and actually, you know, fix them and make certain that this was the correct one before they took it. Now, they do that, but while they're doing that, they confirm that, yes, this is the right one. Sulu's finishing up in there. He's cleaning stuff up, and Kirk says, I'm just going to go out here for a minute, steps out the room, and then we get... I don't know who he is. We don't actually get his rank, I don't think, but we get a guy who is obviously the commanding officer on the base. It seems like he is the commander of the base. And two other guards come in. Kirk, thinking very quick, once again, just like the last episode, he is very quick on his feet. He is not a stupid man. He know All these reactions have been trained into him so well. He grabs that door, slams it behind him so that that way the officers can't see Sulu because they haven't confirmed there's two men. They, the main guy thinks he saw movement behind the door, but after they manage to contain Kirk and capture him, they open the door and there's no one there because Sulu has the moment he heard you know, combat going on in the other room and the door slam has obviously pulled out the communicator and said, beam me up. So they've beamed him up along with the film reel. So mission half successful. The film reel and the evidence of the UFO has been taken back to the starship. That's been covered up. Problem is, now you've got a second person from the 60s on board the starship, who has now disappeared. They don't really go over whether that man was important and whether he could stay on the starship or leave or not, because he's not really talked about it. I think he was mostly just comedic relief and to add a bit of tension. But Kirk being stuck on the world with this guy, now that that's a problem. <laughs> What's funny, though, is, my God, Kirk is so sassy. He gives this guy so much shit. This guy's got him like he's sitting on a chair and he's interrogating him because, of course, I mean, even the 1960s aren't that different to today. I'm pretty sure if you broke into an Air Force base in the middle of the night and you were trying to steal footage from aircrafts that were going on and possibly sabotaging or doing whatever else they might suspect you of, yeah, you're in a lot of trouble. They're going to strap you to a chair. They, I mean, in America, depending on how severe you are, you may officially be charged or you might be shipped off to somewhere like Guantanamo Bay where you're tortured forever until you actually say something. But uh, they don't really get time for that because they've only got him for the moment. Now, they capture Kirk. Obviously, Sulu has been back, so he's made Spock and the others aware of, like, I don't know exactly what happened, but someone came in the room, Kirk closed the door, I beamed up, and there was some kind of fight. Now, Captain Christopher tells Spock that that base is fairly remote and that even if they radioed into another base to bring in other people from other departments or the government to investigate Kirk, it's going to take time. It's remote. They have to get out there. He's like, you've got a minimum of an hour before other forces get there. So they know they've got a limited time to get Kirk out of there and somehow explain what happened and do this in a way where no one's aware of what happened. So... You know, he then basically, Captain Christopher this is, uses this as an excuse to sort of blackmail Spock, where he's like, well, you could beam a team down to the, to the base, and you could look around for him, but you would risk more exposure, it would take you time, and I'm not going to tell you exactly which room your captain is probably being held in, because I'm almost certain where that would be, unless you take me with you. Now, at first he doesn't want to do this, but they sort of see the logic of his argument, and they're like, he's right. We can't afford to get caught again with more people down there. We can't afford to run around, and we have a limited time to get him out. So they bring him. You know, Spock goes down with, I believe, Sulu and Captain Chris. Now, you know, this whole time it's going back and forth. 
Kirk is still giving this guy sass. He's like, my name is James T. Kirk. He's like, where's your friend? There was another man in that room. He said, well, could that man have possibly gotten out without you seeing it? There's only one door. No? Well, then there was no other man then, was there? <laughs> he's like, what's that uniform? What are you messing with me for? And he's just, he's getting real annoyed. He's like, I'm going to put you in jail for about 200 years if you keep this up. And Spock, oh, not Spock, Kirk kind of looks at the camera and it's almost like a fourth wall breaking moment. He's like, hmm, that sounds about right. Which is, you know, a little bit of a joke at the fact that Kirk is about 200 years in the future, roundabout, give or take a little. I think he's about three, but he's like, you know, close enough. If you put me in jail 200 years, then I'll be in about my right time period. He doesn't say that, but like that's kind of the implied joke. He's sort of fourth wall breaking, but he's being real sassy. When he asks him how he got in there, he literally just says, you wouldn't understand, I just popped in. And he's like, look, you need to start giving us some answers. You were here to sabotage our base. Yeah, that, that goes on for a while. And eventually, uh, Sulu and all that come down, like I said. They knock out the guard at the door. The main commander guy that's interrogating Kirk goes to stand up and pull out his revolver and like hold it at the door because he sees Spock standing there who was just done the Vulcan death grip to knock out the guy at the front. Again, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but the death grip just knocks you unconscious, does not kill you despite the name. Maybe it can if they intend to, but Spock was trying not to kill. And the moment he pulls out his revolver, Kirk kicks it out of his hand and I do have to say pretty bad planning on the air force's part like you just caught a saboteur why is he not handcuffed why is his feet not in shackles why was he in a physical position to be able to swing a foot at you at all like you don't know who this guy is he's just broken into your base surely you'd be taking more security precautions you'd be putting him in a cage or in a jail cell you wouldn't just have him sitting in a seat next to your desk where he's able to disarm you with his foot seemed like really bad planning but whatever it's tv so you know, that all goes on. They rescue him. And then uh, Spock goes into a side room, or at least that's how it appears. Now, Sulu and Kirk sort of look at each other, and Sulu says, Sorry, sir, we had to bring um, Captain Chris. He wouldn't tell us the location unless we let him come. And Kirk looks around the room, sees everyone else is unconscious, and goes, Well, no real harm done. It's fine. Thank you for coming. Now, during this time... Captain Christopher picks up the revolver off the guy that's been knocked unconscious, sort of subtly, without anyone else noticing. And then right as Kirk goes to pull out his communicator and says, all right, let's get out of here. He says, not so fast. And he pulls out the revolver and he's like, I'm not going back with you. I'm staying right here. I'm going back to my wife. And, so, and you're staying here too. And then Spock walks out behind him because Spock didn't go into a side room Spock used the door to go into the hallway and get around him because Spock is very intelligent and knew full well from the moment Captain Chris said I'm coming with you on this that he was going to betray them and fully intended to get around behind him and use the Vulcan death group to knock him out so they could all transport back to the ship as he explains to Kirk very quickly as he's knocking him out and Chris passes out and drops the revolver so you know, again once again, Spock is brilliant he really is. He's brilliant and he's sarcastic. He outsmarted Chris. Now, at that point, they go back up to the ship and from here, everything's easy. Well, it's not easy, but like Scotty says, the ship's engines are fixed. They do the same trick that the black hole made them do, but they do it with the sun, where they're going to slingshot themselves around the sun in a way that apparently Spock has to calculate something again. I don't know if this was a real theory back then or whether this was just them making it up for the screen, but I have seen this trope before of using a planet or a moon to like 
swing yourself around in such a way that causes you to travel in time. So maybe it's a real thing. But they do this and they work out that they can do it in a way where they'll be able to come back right at the right moment to transport Captain Chris back onto his interceptor before it crashes, but after he transports aboard. That way they're not messing with the path that they've just created. Which is really smart. And then they do the same with the sergeant. Right after the sergeant is transported from the planet to the ship, he gets transported back down from their current time now, which creates a nice little closed loop where, yes, they've seen a few things, but like they said, without any evidence, they'll just be seen as two more people that saw UFOs and nothing will come of it. They've been placed back, so now the ship's uh, cameras or the interceptor cameras don't work because they've taken the footage already in the future after he lands. And he goes back and presumably has his son who becomes the colonel and all those things and lives his life. And then they use the son to jump themselves back to their time. Which, you know, I still think that whole theory of time travel is a little bit weird and one of the least cool ways that we see time travel, but whatever. You know, you're allowed to have fun with it and do it in different ways. For me, I just thought this episode was really, really cool in the fact that we went back to the 1960s, well... They went to the modern day back when this was on TV, but for modern viewers, they went back to the 1960s and we got to see a sort of how the 23rd century and the 20th century would interact with each other. And it's about how you'd expect accusations of UFOs and cameras and knocking each other out and lots of secrecy because, you know, time travels have to be that way and the 1960s was the Cold War, the height of secrecy. So all of that's going on. They get back. I'm just trying to look if there's anything else that I've missed in my notes, but no, I don't think so. Oh, there is. There's, there's one other. There's two things I want to say. So these aren't to do with the story of the episode, because overall, I think that's actually a really good episode. I think off the time travel episodes, that is definitely a highlight. It's a really good one. Now, Kirk makes a comment that was really interesting to me. When he talks to Captain Chris about the ship, because Christopher looks around and says, this ship. It's magnificent. It must have taken a lot to build something like this. Kirk comments, there are only 12 ships like this in the fleet. Now, 12 ships? Really? Like, I get the Constitution class is a fairly new class, and the, you know, the flagship of the fleet should be of the newest design, but 12? Is he suggesting that there's only like 12, maybe not many more ships than that in the entire Federation? Because that seems really low. Might explain a bit of the weird storylines we get in the 23rd century of maybe it's true. Because I don't want to go too much into Enterprise, but later on we do learn that, you know, Earth only has one ship in the 22nd century. But one real warp-capable ship. There's a lot of, like, weird ships that get used that are sleeper ships and cryogenic ships and stuff. But actual warp ships, there's only one, the NX Enterprise, which is the precursor to the Enterprise in this show. Now... That was the one ship Earth had back then, and that show actually gives us the founding of the Federation and we meet some of the other species, but it's interesting that they say there's only 12. That sort of tells me that this was a very early era of the Federation and that a lot of these colonies are probably new. There's probably a reason they're calling them Earth colonies, because they very much are. They're not Federation colonies. Like, they are the Federation. They are working with their allies, but at this point, Earth is still sort of... Humans are establishing themselves as a power within the Federation, but within space. They're still spreading out. There's still not many of them. They still don't have that many ships. Which is interesting, because that's kind of... I never really considered that. Because without spoiling too much, 
you know, the next generation, the stuff we'll get into in future by the 24th century, which is about 70, 80 years after this, there's a hell of a lot more than 12 ships. I couldn't even begin to give an estimate, but we're talking hundreds and hundreds of ships, not 12. <laughs> this this 12 ships, like, that kind of shocked me when it said that. I was like, that's weird, but okay. It's also a weird side story. I don't know if that's going to come up in future episodes at all, but they make a comment about the computer is being really sexual. It's got a female voice, and it keeps calling Kirk, yes, dear. Keeps calling him dear, and it keeps being really strange. And he makes a comment to Captain Chris about how we had to stop off at a starbase on a planet not long ago that is ran by women, and they thought how ship's computer needed a little personality. We're going to have to stop into a starbase and spend about three weeks getting that fixed. Which is interesting. I have to wonder if that world full of women isn't a world that we will see later on in Next Generation in the first season. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting. The whole computer has a female voice and needs to be changed. There's a few episodes I know of in the original series or recall that had a bit to do with the ship's computer, and I'm wondering if this is kind of a hint at that maybe they've already started thinking about this script and they're going to get into it later. I don't know. Maybe this was just a throwaway joke for the episodes. They could have a bit of fun about the different problems of the future with Chris, and in the next episode it'll be back to normal and those computer problems are their own stories. We'll see. But anyway, thanks for watching. This has been... Federation Radio, a Star Trek podcast. Feel free to send me through an email if you have any questions or comments about these episodes that I've been covering or anything else in Star Trek, really. And, uh, oh, also, I should mention, I'm probably bad to leave this at the end, the actress for Uhura actually died very recently, and, uh, that's very sad because she seemed like a lovely woman, and seeing her again in Star Trek is kind of sad, actually watching her as a young woman, because again, she's a very attractive woman, she's a very good actress, I really like her in this show, and knowing she died literally a few weeks ago made this a little bit sad to watch. And also, for anyone who is interested, I am, this podcast, I don't know what platform you listen to it on, but please feel free to give me a review on any of those platforms, I would appreciate any feedback I can get, positive would be more appreciated for the algorithms, but if you really think I'm that bad, go ahead and tell me, I'm never one to shy away from honesty. But I wanted to point out that I have been, over the last week, I spent about two, three days slowly rendering all of these into a video format and uploading them to YouTube. So feel free at any point to head across to my YouTube channel, which is, uh, one second, Musings from Chateau Gallia, which is my channel that I'm intending to be a central point where I'm going to be uploading podcasts. For the moment, I just run the one, but I have ideas for others in future, and I want to upload them all in video form there. Plus, I'm hoping one day to do some more YouTube stuff, and maybe some other stuff, and I want that channel to be sort of a central point for if you're interested in anything that I, Floyd Gallia, does on the internet, that channel is going to be your central point and archive for finding any of it. I will, of course, continue to upload to other platforms. This is a podcast after all. It will be on all podcast platforms that I can put it on. I thank you for listening, and goodbye for now.